Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And this week, we are talking to Virginia Soul Smith. She is the author of the new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, and The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. Virginia's reporting on diet culture, health, and parenting has appeared in the New York Times, Scientific American, and many other publications. Virginia also writes the popular anti-diet newsletter, Burnt Toast, get it every week, and also hosts the Burnt Toast podcast. Welcome, Virginia. Thank you. It's great to be here. So in this book, you are asking us to talk about fat and fatness differently than we ever have before, beginning with not using the words overweight or obese. Why do you think that we should make those linguistic choices? It's such a great place to start with this conversation. So, you know, we all grew up with this sort of knee-jerk assumption just baked into how we move through the world that being fat is bad. It's something you want to avoid, something you need to manage, you know, always be sort of in pursuit of thinness. And what we know is that that mindset, that anti-fat bias has caused a ton of harm to folks who live in bigger bodies. Specifically, you know, my work is focused on parents in terms of how we're raising our kids. That negative message about body size is incredibly destructive. So one of the most important things we can do is to reclaim the word fat, recognize that it's just a neutral body descriptor. People are short and tall. People are fat and thin. People have different colored skin, different colored hair. These are all just physical traits that we don't need to assign value to. That is an incredibly powerful way to start to undo and unlearn this bias. And the reason I use fat and so many activists use fat instead of obese or overweight is because those words have been weaponized against fat folks for decades by doctors, by the diet industry, by public health systems, all these large institutions that have told us our bodies are problems to solve. And particularly with obesity, I think it's worth knowing that if you trace it back to its Latin root, it's a word that actually means to eat oneself fat. So right there, you understand that this is a word that has a stereotype about body size and behavior embedded into it. And so for us to use that in the way we do as a medical diagnosis, but also as a slur, it's just incredibly problematic. And, you know, anyone in a larger body can tell you it does not feel good to have that word applied to you. So I think stepping away from the O words, as we call them, and making peace with fat is just a great place to start in unlearning a lot of this. I think for 
ourselves, our audience, we've talked a lot about this topic. And I think that the idea that fat is not bad, that the word fat is not a bad word, that in fact, the shape of your body is completely morally neutral is a very radical idea. I'm middle-aged and I definitely grew up in a world and a home where being fat was not morally neutral. It was not only unattractive and undesirable, it was sort of morally like you've done something bad. And so I just want to start by really dialing in and presenting it to people because I think there are still people listening who have never been introduced to the concept that there is nothing wrong with being fat. So can you talk about that a little bit from your writing and your journalism experience? Because I know for myself, being introduced, that concept was extremely radical. Yeah, it is radical. And it shouldn't be, right? But it still definitely is. And this isn't surprising. I mean, anti-fat bias has been around for centuries. This is not a new concept, right? And you know, you can trace it back. Like the ancient Greeks had really rigid ideas about body size. And so this is not a new thing. And in, but it really comes into play in a major way in the United States at the end of the 19th century with the end of slavery. And so at that point, we started to see beauty ideals centering in on a thin and very sort of controlled body. And this was a response to the fact that white supremacists were trying to retain power and Black folks were free, and so now their bodies had to be demonized and controlled. And so there's a long history to that. I would recommend folks check out Sabrina Strings' Fearing the Black Body if they want to do a deep dive into that whole conversation. But the important thing to know is that we've had this baked into our culture, into the air we've been breathing for decades now, that fat is bad. So yes, it is radical to say, actually, it's not. But that means that that bias against fatness has also been baked into all of the research and all of our sort of intellectual understanding about how fatness happens. And so the reason you think that fat is, quote, bad is because you probably grew up thinking that your body size was something you should have total control over and that if you were becoming fat or if you were fat, it was because of a failure of willpower. It was because you weren't trying hard enough. You weren't being good enough. You know, it's also very intertwined with like religious doctrines and, you know, morality in all these other ways. When what we actually know about body size is that it is at least 60% genetics. You can't control that. You didn't decide that. You didn't do anything right or wrong. It's just genetics. And then the other largest drivers of body size are also things we have no control over. It's things like our socioeconomic status, our access to food and walkable neighborhoods, experiences of chronic oppression. So that can include, you know, if you're marginalized in terms of race or gender identity or anything like that. Women in particular, we are walking through the world all the time being told that our bodies are our value. And so this is, you know, a chronic form of oppression we experience. And then, you know, diet, lifestyle, personal choice is like maybe 5% of it. So we have been taught to focus on that like 5%, that tiny sliver of the pie that are the things you can control. And we have been told that if we focus all our energy on how we eat and how we exercise, we will have the perfect body. And we know from decades of research that that will not happen, right? That dieting fails for up to 95% of people who try it. And yet, because we have this whole moral hold on our body size as a sign of our how disciplined we are and our willpower and all of this... We blame ourselves when the diets don't work instead of saying, wait a second, this whole system is rigged. There's no mm. chance. <laughs> we have no chance here. 
And we come by that anxiety, honestly, as you say in the book so eloquently, you know, this isn't like you're a bad person if you think this. You've been no, taught yeah. this very yes. carefully, right? And how it comes into play with parenting. There's just so much I want to talk about because this applies to us for ourselves as women. We're going to do a seven-hour uh, podcast today because Amy and I have quite a list. <laughs> the parenting thing and, you know, this fear-mongering starts at a very, when our children are very young and the childhood obesity epidemic, and there are more fat kids than there used to be. And we you talk about that in the book, all the reasons that isn't true, but that's laid at the feet of their mothers to worry about, fix, and change. And so if we're feeling anxious about that, that's because we're being told to be. Oh, yeah. And by people you should be able to trust and who should support you, like your pediatrician. I mean, this is coming at us from all angles, and mothers in particular are carrying the biggest burden. We are told you know, if you're a biological mom from the time you get pregnant, even before you get pregnant, you're probably told that your body size will dictate your fitness as a mother. We know that lots of countries won't let you adopt if your BMI is above a certain number. Lots of fertility clinics won't take you on as a patient unless you lose weight first. So again, anti-fat bias baked into the whole premise of motherhood. We think only thin people will be good moms, which like just sit with that for a second <laughs> and how messed up that is. And then once you do have a child, how you are feeding that child is, you know, we are socialized for mothers to do the majority of family, particularly in the first year if you're breastfeeding. But then even after that, women are socialized to be the caregivers, the feeders of our families. And so we are, again, held responsible for anything that's going wrong with our child's growth, too high, too low on the growth chart, but particularly too high. And so this is coming at us from all sides. And it's so important to... Let yourself off the hook for the blame there. It is not your fault that you've bought into the system. You were never given any other choice. This was the roadmap we've all been given. But to understand that there is real harm caused by putting that pressure on mothers and by mothers then putting that pressure on our kids to maintain thinness or to pursue thinness, that comes with an extremely high cost. Because another point that you make that, again, was a revelation to me is that thinness and health are completely equated by our doctors, our society. And I had a friend who had a terrible disease and we lived in LA at the time. And she said everywhere she went, people were like, what are you doing? You look amazing. She's like, I'm dying actually. And yeah. she did not die. Thank God. But like the big trick is like, get this horrible disease and you too could be 25 pounds underweight. But that I find with kids. I have a kid who struggles in an eating area. And but because it manifests as thinness, it's not taken seriously in a way that friends of mine who have perfectly healthy kids who are fatter are told, well, they need to lose weight. It's like th that kid is much more healthy than a kid presenting right. in a thin body. And so where does our control piece come into that? Is it in understanding this and just synthesizing it for ourselves? Is it making it visible for medical providers? Where do we have some agency? That's a great question because it can feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so powerless against this whole system. And exactly as you say, starting to untangle the relationship between thinness and health can feel really tricky for folks. One example I'll just throw out quickly is a story from the book of two sisters, one of whom was extremely ill. Her family couldn't figure out what was going on. She was frequently hospitalized, frequently, you know, there was like, they were on this sort of year-long odyssey trying to understand her symptoms. 
And in the process of that, she was losing significant amounts of weight. And everywhere they went, she was praised for it. People, oh my gosh, she's so cute. Look how cute she is in these clothes. She's such a pretty little girl. And her younger sister, who was in a bigger body with absolutely no health problems whatsoever, the pediatrician was like, we really have to look at, you know, we really need to consider doing something about this. Turned out the older sister had type 1 diabetes. She was extremely ill. And the younger sister, perfectly healthy, but her body was the one everyone worried about. So that's just one example of the many, many ways in which weight and health usually have nothing to do with each other. Or even when weight does influence health, A, it might be weight loss, not necessarily weight gain. And focusing on the weight will not fix the underlying health problem. So we just approach it in this really narrow-minded way where all we do is think about the scale. So as parents, I think one of the most powerful things you can do is look for ways to remove weight as a problem, any discussion of weight as a problem, from your family's vocabulary. So that would include, and this one is a big one and hard for a lot of people, but if you have a scale in your house, can you get rid of that scale? Can you at least put it in a closet where it is not sort of the first thing your kids see when they go in the bathroom in the morning and is stepping on it the first thing you do in the morning? And is that something you can step away from? And then it'll also be things like having a conversation with your pediatrician and saying, I don't want to talk about weight in front of the kids. Happy for you. You know, there are times where we have to know, is my kid big enough for the booster seat or the car seat? You know, like there's times where you need to know your children's weight in terms of dosing medication or you know, a few times a year or, you know, every few years, it's useful to have those touch points. But can we not discuss it in front of the kids? And if you have concerns, can you pull me aside and we'll have a sidebar conversation out of the exam room just so that the kids don't have to hear a pediatrician saying their body is a problem? Because I can tell you from interviewing dozens and dozens of families, that's one of the most common eating disorder origin stories is the pediatrician making a negative comment. So, And I just want to also say it's not that your goal is to make sure your kids are never exposed to this stuff because that's impossible, right? We live in this world. But it's to look for ways to turn down the volume and also to be thinking about how you can engage with your kids on these issues so they can start to develop the skills they need to navigate this. We're talking to Virginia Soul Smith. Her new book is Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. We'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby's skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. 
Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different and fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Virginia, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about correlation and causation because if you haven't been introduced to this topic before, like Margaret was saying in the first segment, you might be like, but being fat is unhealthy. And you really drilled down the studies in this book that show that there is maybe correlation, but there's not causation, which is what we have been led to believe. Can you explain the difference? Yeah. So causation is when you can say very definitively that this behavior or this action, this trait causes this health condition. And the way science works, we can almost never say this, right? Like there's very few health conditions where we can say like, this is the cause of this. So what we have is decades of research showing a correlation where folks in larger bodies are more likely to have certain what we consider weight-linked health conditions, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that the higher body weight is the reason they have those health conditions. It's not necessarily the root cause. And this is really important to sort of grasp. So it could be that the weight is simply a, another thing that's happening, right? Like this population tends to be in bigger bodies and they also tend to have this health condition, but the two things are totally unrelated. It could also be that there's some shared root cause that's contributing to a larger body weight and the health condition. We think this might be going on in something like PCOS maybe, where you see body size go up sometimes and you see the PCOS, but it's not that the body size itself is causing it. It's that there's some underlying hormonal things going on that are driving both pathways. There's a couple different ways this can play out, but in every scenario, 
lowering body weight will not solve the health issue because body weight is not the cause of the health issue. So that's what's important to understand is what we have done as a culture in our entire medical system is anytime there's a weight-linked health condition, the doctor says, lose weight and your health will improve. And what's probably happening when they see some of those benefits is that people changed lifestyle habits, like maybe they started exercising more, which we know does have a causal relationship with improving lots of health outcomes. But you can get the benefits, those health benefits of lowering your blood pressure, your cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera, by exercising, even if you don't lose weight. So if we were only to say it was successful if you lost weight, you might stop exercising, right? Because you'd be like, well, I didn't lose weight because most people won't lose weight exercising. And so it's not worth doing. But actually, you're missing out on the true health benefits of that lifestyle change because you're making it all about weight. So this is where it's just really about understanding that these body size is one trait. It's one thing going on with us, but it is not the whole story. And when we keep focusing there, we're actually underserving our health because we're missing the whole larger constellation of issues that we're likely dealing with. Yeah, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but like I want to put the chip in people's heads and be like, really, guys, (laughs) we're not joking. This is actually true. The other piece of this is there's lots of research showing that there are times that higher body weight is good for your health. And we don't hear about that enough. I mean, in the research, they call it the obesity paradox, which right there you see the stigma embedded, right? Because it's like they're calling it a paradox because they can't imagine. It must be a paradox because one of the things is bad. Right. Right. What we see is that being in a larger body, you're less likely to get osteoporosis. People in larger bodies do better after heart surgery. They do better with cancer treatments. There's a couple different things like that that are really powerful and life-sustaining health benefits, not just like a little mild change, like a major change. And again, this is a correlation, right? So it could be that the body weight has nothing to do with these benefits, or it could be that weight is sometimes truly protective. Either way, putting people on diets is not going to do anything to promote health in those scenarios. And so. and realistically is not going to change anyone's weight. That's the other thing that I think is pretty radical. And we did an episode a long time ago called Let's Not Care What We Weigh. And like, can we just get to a point in our lives where this is no longer a factor? This is a number we no longer think about. And I think it's been a journey, but I know for myself that it's something that I'm just like, the amount of hours that I have spent thinking about my weight, if only I could have them back. And I have kids and now obviously like this is, I want to break some of the patterns that I have been exposed to. And so let's talk a little bit about how anti-fat bias shows up in our kids and in our lives. And I think many of them are fairly obvious. You know, we were definitely raised with good foods and bad foods and good eaters and bad eaters, good eaters and bad eaters. And as you said, one of the things that I've become conscious of in my middle age is that I try not to make appearance part of any greeting that I have with another human being. Like, I don't, I try not to start conversations with like, you look great because translation in my life has always been as my weight has fluctuated throughout my life. You look great is the, it's someone just saying to my face, you finally look thinner. Right. And so, you know, I know there are certain things about not talking about food as having moral values and trying not to greet people and talking about weight. But what are some other ways that anti-fat bias is creeping into our language and our interactions with our kids? I think the family dinner table is a great place to start. I mean, you mentioned the good foods and bad foods thing, but it's also stuff like You know, if one of the parents is dieting and not eating certain foods, kids pick up on that. Even if you're not telling the kids they can't eat carbs, they know 
if mom or dad isn't eating carbs. And that is something they really notice. It also, you know, in terms of our kids' lives, it shows up in school. Unfortunately, most of our health and nutrition programming in schools is based around an obesity prevention model. So kids are going to start learning very early. I just got a note from a parent today saying, you know, my daughter's in high school and she got a calorie counting assignment in health class. This is really common that they give kids calorie logs and tell them to track everything they eat for two weeks and count like. Is literally teaching children eating disorder behavior. <laughs> like, yeah. And like 40-year-old eating disorder behavior, right? That counting calories is the way to be thin. Right. And, yeah. Right. Exactly. Like counting calories is not necessary for anybody's health. And to give this to middle schoolers and high schoolers who are like the most at risk group for eating disorders, it just blows my mind. And I'm a fan of pushback behavior. Like we talk about homework for first graders. I would just send it back and be like, no, thanks. We don't need to be doing an hour of homework. My kids are outside playing. Thanks. Carolyn Crouncher goes back in our household and says, no, thanks. We don't do this kind of behavior. And also the doctor who told me that one of my problems would be solved by losing 25 pounds. I was like, no, thanks. It's not going to happen. I've been working on it for 35 years now. Spoiler alert. It's not happening. I can tell you it's not happening. So what's the other option? Like, I think that's another piece of control is being able to say, like, we're not going to participate in this. Yeah, no, it's definitely with the assignments. I encourage parents to opt out, opt out of the BMI screenings. If your school does those, like weighing kids in gym class is a barbaric practice that we need to be done with. Is that still happening? In at least 26 states, yes. So that's when, like, if you have to keep your kids home that day, do it. But the other piece of it I want to emphasize is we should recognize it is easier for some of us to push back and opt out than others. Absolutely. That's such a good point. You know, if you are someone who's in a straight size body, meaning you don't wear plus size clothes, even if you have your own personal struggles with weight, which again, we're all in this culture, we all have it. It is easier for you to say to a doctor, I'm not going to get on the scale or to say to the gym teacher, my daughter's not going to complete that assignment because you are not being judged in the way that a fat person is being judged. So what I would encourage folks with straight size privilege to do is not only do that pushing back, but also think about what can you be doing in your community to make sure it is more size inclusive all across the board. A big one, if you coach any kind of sports team or are involved with your kids' sports teams, ask what size uniforms they carry. You know, we have the stereotype that fat kids don't play sports, that fat kids are lazy. Fat kids often can't get a jersey in their size. So how are they supposed to join the sports team? How are they going to feel welcome and part of the team if they're having to wear like some, you know, extra t-shirt that the coach found in the back of his car or whatever that doesn't match what everyone else is wearing? So thinking a little bit about how does our school community work? How does our, you know, whatever church, whatever community you're in, how are we making people in larger bodies welcome here? Do we have chairs that fit everybody? Do we have uniforms that work for everybody? Are the coaches paying only attention to the thin kids who have the, quote, right type of body for the sport? Or are they actually making time and space to encourage everyone to play? These are just, you know, it, once you start looking for it, you're going to see it everywhere is an unfortunate truth with anti-fat bias. But it also means there's kind of no end to the ways you can Start to just look for small shifts, ways to push back a little bit. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about how we address anti-fat bias in our own homes, at our own dinner tables. We're talking to Virginia Soul Smith, and we'll be right back. 
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Reaching out, I wanted to make sure to allow some time to talk about in our own homes how this plays out because we do get so much guilt as parents that we have to get this right, that our kids have to be eating the rainbow and that we have to be eating dinner together every night because somehow that's the bugaboo. The child obesity epidemic has been laid at the feet of we're not feeding our kids at home anymore. So moms, you know, make a wonderful dinner table. (laughs) It must be the mom's fault. We don't know, but whatever it is, it must be the mom's. (laughs) We'll find a way to blame them. Yeah. And it's the mom's fault if the growth chart is starting to look a little off. Like there's a lot of pressure on us. There's a lot of pressure to be the parent of a kid who gets remarks that their size is not what they somebody else thinks that it should be. And so what do you do like in your home with your own kids to sort of readdress some of this stuff? One of the biggest things I talk about in the book and that I think about a lot in my own parenting is how can I make sure that I'm centering body autonomy in more of my parenting decisions and particularly around meals and feeding kids? We are told that nutrition matters most, that we should be working on, yeah, eating the rainbow, getting lots of vegetables in our kids, getting picky eaters to expand their palates and try new foods. And it's not that nutrition doesn't matter at all. Of course, you know, we all benefit from eating a vegetable every now and then. But what we know from research is that what kids fundamentally need is enough calories to grow and thrive. And so getting your kid enough to eat every day is your biggest goal as a parent, And if they're getting enough to eat, the nutrition, the nuances of how many vegetables or are they eating a fruit or fiber, all of that can work itself out over the course of a few days a week. You're going to see that kids will naturally gravitate to those food groups. So 
I think there's good reason to put the nutrition piece aside a little bit, let ourselves off that hook, because that's like really tied up in diet culture and perfectionism and all these, you know, expectations heaped on moms. And because the other thing is when you're overly micromanaging nutrition with your kids, you're actually depriving them of a lot of body autonomy at the dinner table. You're saying to them, I know your body better than you. I know how hungry or full you should be right now. I know what you need to be eating. And what we want to do is raise kids who know that they can trust their bodies first and foremost. They can listen to themselves. And if you think big picture about your goals for your kids as a parent, even if it is frustrating to me that I spent 40 minutes cooking dinner and my children are eating two bites and running away from the table, which is a true story in my house many nights a week. I was going to say true story every night of the week. (laughs) Yes. Even if it is like frustrating in the moment to see that they are not like once again passing up the salad bowl. Big picture, I want my daughters to know that they can listen to their bodies first and foremost. I want that to follow them into dating, into employment situations, into sports, into anything else they're doing with their bodies. I want them to know that they can trust that voice that says, this doesn't feel okay to me. And so if that means letting them say no to eating broccoli, that feels like so worth it to me in the big picture sense. And I think that's one of the most fundamental gifts we can give our kids in terms of fighting anti-fat bias too, because if they can trust that their bodies are good, no matter what, if they can know that they can listen to themselves and that that's separate from whatever size their body happens to be, whatever changes they're going through during puberty, you know, bodies change constantly, right? But if the through line can be, you can listen to yourself first, that's such a powerful gift we can give them. And it really takes the pressure off. It makes dinner way more pleasant too, because now you're not battling over, you know, the three bites of chicken or whatever. And you can just say, I'm raising a kid with body autonomy. I will tell you, though, there's one downside to this, which is last week we were traveling and we took our kids misguidedly to a very fancy restaurant for like a very fancy dinner for my mom's birthday. It's the worst feeling. The worst. You just know it's going to go badly, right? And it turned out when we Uh, got there. So quiet. All you hear is the clinking of the silverware. My kids are five and nine. I just want to. No, no, that was misguided. And we got there and it turned out it was a chef's tasting menu. Oh, no. And so we had to explain to my five-year-old that she wasn't going to pick what she got to eat for dinner in a restaurant, which is like, you know, her experiences of restaurants is like a diner where, of course, she gets to pick what she wants. And she turns to me and she goes, but if the chef picks what I eat, he's trying to control my body. (laughs) Slow clap, mom. Slow clap. And I was like, I am both so proud and also how will I survive this evening? Wait a minute. How did you survive? Like you are still alive because you are on our podcast right now. Like what did your children eat off of a chef's tasting? Goldfish under the table, right? Amazingly, they did have a kid's version and it was chicken fingers and French fries. And I wanted to marry that chef. Love that. I want to go to that restaurant. The chef's tasting menu. Wow. Yeah, they did have a separate menu for the kids. Obviously, the fancy adults did not eat that. But yeah, but when she was like, but you can't control my body like that. And I was like, you're not wrong. But also, okay, another time I'll explain to you how nice it is for someone else to decide what's for dinner. Because that's a whole separate thing. I think of a lot of guests we have had on to talk about racial bias, to talk about differences, neuro differences, uh, limb differences, and that 
I think that there is some hesitation for moms to introduce the concept. So mm-hmm. that somehow we are overstepping or in, involving a conversation that like, oh, why would I put this in front of my kids? They don't need to know about this. They just love everybody the way they are because that's how kids are. And I assume with anti-fat bias, there's this same kind of disconnect sometimes of like, well, I don't want to talk about this because either I feel it doesn't apply to me or I feel it does apply to me and I feel strange about that and or that I'm somehow introducing a foreign concept to our kids. So what would you say about that? Unfortunately, your kids already know this is a common fear. I hear this from parents all the time. Well, I don't want to teach her not to love her body. I don't want to teach him to worry about weight by introducing this. We have studies showing that between the ages of three and five, kids start to learn that fat means bad. So unless you're, you know, if you're parenting a two-year-old, okay, you're off the hook for a few months. But the rest of us have to start doing this work. And it's important to be doing this work for a couple of reasons. One is, yes, if you're raising a kid in a bigger body, believe me, they know. Believe me, they are picking up on the messages from the rest of the world. And your home needs to be their safe space. It needs to be the place where they know their body is unconditionally loved and accepted and that you're going to work with them to support them and give them the tools they need to navigate this because this is something they have to deal with and that they are already dealing with. And so you need to show up and support them. So that's one piece of it. If you're raising a thin kid, you may be more likely to be like, well, it's not really a concern yet and I don't have to deal with this. But here I draw the parallel with racism. If white parents don't talk about racism, we raise kids with racist beliefs. If thin parents don't talk to thin kids about anti-fat bias, we raise kids who perpetuate anti-fat bias. And even thin kids need to know that their body is not their value, right? Like even thin, you know, you, you may have the kid with the perfect ballerina body or the perfect runner body and the coach and the dance teacher love them, but that's teaching them that that's their value and that that's something they need to hang on to. And I'm here to say I was a thin kid. I had thin privilege. I mean, I still benefit from thin privilege, but, you know, I was thin until college and now I'm a small fat adult that refers to someone who's in plus sizes, but at the lower end of that spectrum. And so it was a really, you know, it was a lot of work for me to understand that I could let go of thinness and still be myself. And just think like if we could teach our kids that it's okay that your body's changed because that's not your value, that's going to help them. So, you know, you can't guarantee thinness to anybody. You can't guarantee able-bodiedness or health or any of these things. So if we're attaching our worth to those things, then kids are going to have a much harder time. So yeah, it is really necessary to start talking about this because they are already learning it. They need the counter-programming from you. And every kid, regardless of their size, needs to know that their body is their body and that's not their value. I really loved this book, Virginia. I just, you know, it's one of those books that you just fill up with so many uh, notes and dog ears and everything. It, it's When Amy's got her sticky tape going, you know, it's it's a good one. <laughs> no, I just love that. It's so many things. That I want to give you one sentence to sort of like close on because this blew my mind when I read this. We want our kids to love their bodies, you wrote, but we take it for granted that fat kids can't do that. And that's just sort of like, oh, you're right. And I've made that assumption. And they all deserve to be able to do that. We all, adults too, right? Yes, I have made the assumption that you need to look a certain way to feel happy in your body. And then I'm thereby increasing the likelihood that that is true. (laughs) So I learned a lot from this book. Right. I know. Oh, I so appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, there is something for everybody in this book. And uh, it's full of research and stories. And it's very, very accessible. And this is the kind of work that I think is really challenging for especially people. I have had it in my own life 
weight struggles and feeling very uh, emotionally, I'm finding myself teary just having this conversation. Like it's just this stuff goes really deep. And I think it can be really easy to just be like, well, I'm done. I'm not weighing myself anymore. Done. Let's put that topic away. Because I think it's important to say that this topic can be really, really hard for people but we want our kids to have the benefit of our knowledge and our age and our calmness. And I think that this book really helped me. And I think it can help a lot of our listeners who are really trying to find a new way through this topic. So Virginia, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. That means so much. Virginia, tell us where our listeners can find you, your podcast, your book, your newsletter, all of it. So the book is Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, and you can get it anywhere you get your books or audiobooks. I narrated the audio, so that's fun too. You can subscribe to my newsletter, Burnt Toast, at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. You can get the Burnt Toast podcast wherever you are listening to this podcast. And you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at V underscore Soulsmith. Thanks, Virginia. We'll put the links to all of that in the show notes. This was a great conversation. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.